This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi became the highest level U.S. official to visit Taiwan in more than two decades. The trip has fanned the flames of tension with China. Then, the head of Russia's space program recently announced it will quit the International Space Station after 2024. It's a move that puts the future of the ISS in question. And the CHIPS Act is expected to boost American production of semiconductors. But some say it may not be enough to avert future shortages. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Just days after Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan, China started conducting live-fire missile drills around the contested territory. Yoon Soon is the director of the China program at the Stimson Center. Yoon, welcome to the program. Hi, Mimi. Thank you for having me. So China has been conducting these live-fire military drills around Taiwan as a result of Speaker Pelosi's visit. How significant is that? Well, this is pretty significant in terms of the framing that the Chinese have framed this as a forced Taiwan Strait crisis. It has, in fact, uh, in fact, project the Chinese military presence and also military pre uh, military threat to the uh, not only the Taiwanese territorial borders but also post a direct security threat to the Taiwan Island. So the Chinese are trying to change the status quo. And unfortunately, this time, uh, how uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan has created the prequel or created the, the um, paved the ground for the Chinese to act out. Do you think this could draw Japan into conflict with China? Because I understand that some of their missiles landed in that area. Yes, it has. And the Japanese government has protested against Beijing's military exercises and the fact that some of the Chinese missiles did land in Japanese exclusive economic zones. I think the Chinese reaction is that while China and Japan has maritime disputes between them, so therefore the demarcation of the maritime borders have not really been performed, have not been completed. So the Chinese have used that excuse to conveniently um, cover up the fact that the Chinese missiles did land in the Japanese EEZ. And it also sends a warning signal to Japan that in the future potential Taiwan contingency, Japan should stand aside and should not get involved, especially not militarily. So what does the U.S. gain from Speaker Pelosi's visit? What, what are the benefits here? Well, there are a couple of benefits. I think first, of course, with uh, with Pelosi's visit, she is the highest-ranking U.S. government officials to visit the island for for more than two decades. And that by itself has shown U.S. strong support to Taiwan and the U.S. commitment to support Taiwan. And I think the second ramification or the second uh, importance is that we know that China put on a very strong diplomatic campaign to deter her from going before the trip happened. And the reality is we cannot let China determine what U.S. will and will not do. So the fact that we need to have this trip in order to deny China the ability to interfere in our foreign policy decision making is also not trivial. So right now, China's president, Xi, is running for a third term. Is that election causing more pressure on him to respond to Pelosi's visit? 
Uh, yes and no. First, it's not really an election, right? Um, it's a it's a it's a consensus building process in the in the Chinese political term. And at this point, very few doubt that Xi Jinping will not be able to secure his uh, his third term. So it's pretty much inked. The question is that to what extent Xi Jinping can also appoint his political confidants to the key positions within the government, whether he's going to have a landslide overwhelming victory or not. So in that sense, Pelosi's visit to Taiwan is seen as an embarrassment and humiliation for Xi, and he has to respond, and we have seen his response. But at the same time, I would say that the Chinese response this time is also well calculated in order not to get you in, get into a military escalation with the United States, which is why the Chinese punitive measures have primarily focused on the targeting of Taiwan rather than the United States. So what response, if any, should the U.S. make to China's tests? Uh, at this point, while the Chinese military exercises will be uh, will be ending over the weekend, um, to my understanding, I think U.S. military has uh, has been monitoring the Chinese military activities and also to deter potential Chinese um, Chinese actions that would pose physical threats to, for example, Taiwan's territory. Um, but at the same time, I think by the time these military exercises are over, what the U.S. will have to do is to look at the long-term impact of these military exercises and the precedent that is set and the possibility, actually a pretty large potential, that China will repeat these military exercises because now they have a precedent. And to what extent the U.S. will correspondingly enhance its military assistance to Taiwan, I think that will be the most urgent question to be discussed. Well, you, you mentioned long-term impact, and, and that was my question, is do you think that this the, the backlash will have a lasting impact on U.S.-China relations, or does it just blow over and things just go back to how they were? Uh, I think this is going to have an impact over U.S.-China relations because the Chinese have perceived the U.S. attempt to change the status quo over the Taiwan Strait for quite a while now. And now they are building up their case to say that while well, U.S. indeed has changed its policy, therefore China has also changed its policy. So I think for, for the Chinese, uh, Speaker um, Pelosi's visit to Taiwan has served as a convenient justification to pave the ground for future Chinese assertive and aggressive military activities in the in the Taiwan Strait. So I do think that will have a, a long-term impact. So do you think it was a good idea, Yoon, for her to go? I mean, would you have uh, encouraged her um, and recommended that she go to Taiwan? Um, I think on one hand, we certainly cannot let China tell us what to do or what not to do. But on the other hand, I think there has also been the debate as for whether this has been the best timing because uh, there is a proposal that she could go as a Speaker of the House, but perhaps she could go after the midterm election, which would be much less um, provocative for the, for the Chinese, and the Chinese reaction will also be, be mitigated by the timing. So I think the trip by itself is, uh, is justified, but in terms of the timing, there are different opinions. All right, well, we will continue to watch this, Yun, and see, see where this goes. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mimi. Coming up on Government Matters, Russia once again threatened to pull out of the International Space Station. If they do, it could leave the ISS inoperable. Next, we explore the impacts it could have on the U.S. space program. Stay with us. The International Space Station has long been an example of international cooperation. But over the last year, Russia's multiple threats to abandon the project raised questions about what would happen if it did. 
Caitlin Johnson is Deputy Director of the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Caitlin, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. This isn't the first time Russia has threatened to pull out. No. Is it for real this time? It seems to be a little more serious. Um, unlike last time or the couple past last threats, uh, it is being followed up with discussions with President Putin, um, and Russia seems to be starting to make the necessary changes to be able to withdraw. Now, they did kind of walk back what they originally said. So they originally said, oh, well, we are going to leave in 2024. Now they've taken a step back and they said, we won't leave until after 24, but that's when we'll start the process of withdrawing. But it does seem like they're leaving themselves some wiggle room. It's a little after bit. 2024. Yes. So the United States wants to continue the ISS and, and other partners through 20 to 2030. Um, the station is in fine shape. It's technically capable to do so. Uh, however, I think Russia is, is planning on perhaps leaving in the 2026, maybe even 2028 time period, so a couple years short. So the ISS was jointly built by Russia and the U.S. and jointly operated. Yes. So what happens if it pulls out? So actually, uh, since the beginning of the ISS partnership, there has been a process for w partners withdrawing. They had preemptively thought about this as a possibility, not maybe Russia in particular, but any of the, the um, couple of ISS partners that we have. Um, and so there is a bunch of standards that you have to commit to. Uh, there would be a lot of negotiations, a lot of discussions between all of the ISS partners about what Russia's role has been and how to migrate maybe those trainings that we conduct in Russia for the International Space Station, the actual physical parts of the space the space station and any other kind of operations that Russia's involved in and, and either migrate that to the other partners or make plans to fully shut down the station. I was going to ask you that because if, if they do pull out and those things weren't migrated to somebody else, could the whole thing just have to shut down? It could. If no agreements are reached, um, I think there will be many possibilities to negotiate with Russia, potentially buy out part of their partnership to keep the Russian modules on the space station, uh, to keep it in operation. Uh, the commercial industry in the United States has been asking for years for NASA and others that once the end of the International Space Station, um, that mission is complete, to turn it over to commercial industry. Uh, so I could see a possibility where that is sped up. Uh, so there are a lot of options, I think, and, and our diplomats and uh, people at NASA and the State Department will be very busy for the next couple of years. So there, there's a lot of um, scientific experimentation going on, on on the ISS. What happens to that if Russia pulls out? Sure. Well, um, the nations typically have different science experiments ongoing. Um, you know, NASA has its own missions, growing vegetables and lettuce on the, uh, the space station, for example. but. They will also, um, because they're reliant on Russia for training of astronauts, but also part of the space station and the um, kind of the maintenance of where it sits in orbit uh, is reliant on Russia as well. So that will have to be negotiated. And if you know that those don't go well, those science experiments will stop. Now the United States and NASA has been planning to uh, migrate away from the ISS to the, the next stage, which is the Artemis program, going back to the moon. 
um, a new space station they're calling the Lunar Gateway, which will be able to host some of these similar science experiments, but more focused on long-term habitation of space. The head of Roscosmos uh, says that Russia is going to launch its own space station as soon as 2028. How likely is that? I mean, is that for real? Frankly, um, Russia has some serious hurdles if that is going to become a reality. Uh, their workforce is aging out. Uh, a lot of their, their technically trained people are entering retirement age. Um, and they don't quite have the sustainability to back that up. Their finances are clearly suffering through economic sanctions because of their invasion of Ukraine, but also generally the Russian economy has kind of had a downturn in the past couple of years, and that is also reflected in their investments at Roscosmos, whose budget has also been going down. Um, furthermore, their space programs have not made um, major jumps and leaps. They also don't have the same industrial base or commercial capacity that the United States does. Um, so I think it will be a pretty big effort if they were able to get a new space station up by 2028. It certainly won't be as dynamic or high tech or um, large as the International Space Station is. You know, they did launch an anti-satellite missile last year. Do you think that the effect of sanctions and their financial troubles are going to impact the rest of their space program, namely their military space? You know, I think that's certainly the case. I also think that they might pull money from their civil space program from Roscosmos to supplement the military space program. That does seem to be where they are investing in and making a lot of their developments. Um, the anti-satellite tests that you mentioned that happened in November of last year, you know, was not new technology. It's actually like renovated old Soviet technology. Um, but it's it's certainly an upkeep, and um, they are they're investing in new types of weapons and, and areas of conflict for space. And just very briefly, yeah. do we know anything about the new head of Roscosmos? No, not not a lot. Um, he does, you know, from my perspective, seem to be a little more stable than the former head of Roscosmos, Rogozin. Dmitry Rogozin was quite active on Twitter, tweeting a lot of very aggressive things. That's where a lot of these former threats of them pulling out of the space station came from. Uh, some like very interesting videos of the Russian part of the ISS decoupling and floating away. Um, I think the new head of Roscosmos has uh, maybe a more stable head on his shoulders. Maybe well, has stability is always good yes, when it, it comes is. to Russia. Thank you so much, Caitlin. Thank you. Semiconductors are used in nearly every electronic device, and since the start of the pandemic, there's been a global shortage. It could also impact national security, but experts all agree there's one thing that can be done to improve the supply chain. We'll be right back. Earlier this year, the White House said a semiconductor shortage could cause historic damage to the U.S., undercut technological competitiveness, and give our adversaries a military advantage. Since then, the $52 billion CHIPS Act passed to ramp up semiconductor production in the U.S. The Government Accountability Office just released a preliminary report on the issue. Candace Wright is a director at the GAO. Candace, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Currently, where is uh, the U.S. in semiconductor production in the world market? 
So the U.S. actually, uh, their share of the domestic uh, manufacturing decreased from 37% uh, from the 1990s to now 12% in 2022. Uh, companies that were once produced semiconductors in the U.S. Uh, either closed operations or moved facilities overseas for a number of different reasons, perhaps including uh, things like less costly manufacturing overseas, as well as access to cheaper labor. So the global shortage began in 2020. Why is the semiconductor supply chain so fragile? So I think there's been a um, sort of a bubbling effect, if you will, over the over the past few decades, and the uh, pandemic certainly just exacerbated that issue and really amplified the, the weaknesses in the supply chain. There are a couple of things. One, the fact that there are um, a small concentration of suppliers uh, who uh, operate in the space, which can create uh, certainly single points of failure. Uh, in addition to that, you also had issues with uh, manufacturing facilities uh, being geographically dispersed. We don't have uh, you know, the domestic capacity here in the US, and so that re requires reliance on uh, foreign uh, suppliers overseas. Uh, in addition to that, I'll also just note that there were uh, manufacturing shutdowns during the pandemic, which certainly created problems for getting access to semiconductors for a number of different industries. So for your report, you spoke to 17 different experts, and all of them agreed that workforce development is needed. What does that actually mean? So this, uh, it was really interesting to see that they unanimously agreed on this particular policy area. And really what that uh, stems from is the fact that we just don't have the workforce that we used to, again, because there isn't that same domestic manufacturing that existed uh, several decades ago. And so as a result, we've had a brain drain. And so what the experts uh, reported here, uh, they shared insights that it would really be important to make sure that we're focusing on workforce development this could include things like uh, investing in STEM training. It could also include uh, providing scholarships and really providing opportunities and promoting career opportunities, I should say, to make people aware of the uh, potential for careers in, in the field and to bring in new people, bringing aspiring students and workers who might otherwise go to high-tech industries to make them aware that there are these opportunities available in manufacturing as well as R&D and the semiconductor industry. And what about uh, changes to immigration policy? So that's an area where uh, we heard differing views from the experts. Uh, there were some who certainly thought it's really important to make sure that we're building up the domestic capacity here. But then other experts pointed to the need for immigration reform, particularly to be able to keep the best and brightest of students, for example, PhD students who may come to the US and want to stay, but don't really find a viable avenue to do so. And so there are some experts who thought perhaps trying to do uh, things in tandem, focusing on the immigration reform while also building up the domestic workforce could be a way to try to address the issue. And obviously semiconductor supply is critical to national defense, um, but the experts you talked to didn't all agree that increasing domestic manufacturing capacity was necessary. Why not? So there are a couple of different reasons. Uh, one being uh, certainly, you know, does the U.S. even have the workforce if it were to invest in domestic manufacturing? Do they have the workforce? Again, given that there hasn't been uh, the level of domestic uh, manufacturing capacity um, uh, stateside. 
In addition to that, I think there are also concerns about do you want to have a concentration of, um, you know, your facilities, your suppliers all here in the U.S.? Is the is geographic uh, dispersion across the globe a helpful way to ensure that there is inc uh, to increase your reliance uh, or excuse me, resilience, I should say, in the supply chain? And, and how quickly can domestic manufacturing come online and impact the global supply? So that's an interesting question. I think we've heard a variety of different viewpoints on that. Um, certainly it's not something that can be done overnight to stand up such a capacity. But again, failure to uh, you know, uh, not take action obviously will continue to exacerbate the, the, the problem. And so there are a couple of different priorities that really need to be considered is whether or not you know, the, the priority is national security, whether it's economic competitiveness, or again, making sure that we can increase and strengthen the resilience. And so depending on which priority um, you know, the federal government wants to focus on, then that should inform the appropriate policy option. And finally, Candace, you know, multiple federal agencies deal with semiconductor activities. How are agencies collaborating? How should they be collaborating? Yeah, so certainly we see that there are a number of agencies who have various uh, efforts and activities and auth authorization, I should say, to have um, uh, programs and initiatives in place to address the issue. A key thing is really making sure that there is a, a clear understanding, a common understanding of what the goals are for federal semiconductor policies, and then taking the necessary steps to see what are each what are, what are each of the agencies doing in independently and identifying where there might be uh, intersections in their policies and programs, but then also looking to make sure that we understand where the gaps are and what can be done to close those gaps. All right, Candace, we appreciate you being on the program. Thank you very much. My pleasure. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Be sure to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years, have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite 
connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers, as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right. Well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi. Nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.